0: Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast where murder and family meet as we explore the family tree of a killer. Welcome to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. Hello. And we have been gone for a little over a month now for a break for the holidays and everything like that. And it's so good to see you again, Zelda. It's so good to see you too. What have you been up to? Just (laughs) my kids and just getting stuff together. And then the biggest thing has been worrying about my mom. And you know what's been going on with her. So my parents came up for a visit at Christmas and... I, the the day they walk in the door, my mom's coughing and she's not feeling good. And I look at her at one point and I go, could you just be having problems breathing? And she goes, oh, no, no, they're saying I have this. And it's probably just acid reflux or something. I'm like, no. But being the asthmatic, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I haven't been one who has a ton of um, wheezing as much as I have a lot of coughing fits. Uh-huh. So I was concerned. And so after lunch, my dad took her to the walk-in clinic just to be on the safe side. She ended up hospitalized. Oh. Yeah. Honey. And it was a whole thing back and forth. She got out for a little bit. She gets back home and then she's back in the hospital twice now. So she's still at the hospital. So oh, honey. The I'm good so news sorry. though, the good news is they they had her in isolation for a while and they just released her from isolation, which okay. is great because both of my parents were depressed. They've been married 52 years and being apart is not in their DNA at this point.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And
0: so when they got that news, it's like, my dad's like, I'll be there Mm -hmm. (laughs) soon. And mom's like, wait, you weren't feeling good. So make sure you're negative before you come over.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, for sure. But still, oh my gosh, I'm so glad she's improving.
0: Yeah. They say she has bacterial pneumonia at this point. The COVID's pretty much run its course. It's just trying to get control of that.
1: And she might be there
0: another week. That's
1: so painful. And today's her
0: birthday. That's right. Happy birthday, Mama Scott. Happy birthday, Mom. So she turned
1: 73. Oh, my gosh. That's lovely. Well, hopefully her biggest birthday gift will be getting out of the hospital soon.
0: Yeah, that's what we're all hoping. So after we're done recording, I'm going to pop on with my girls and we're going to do a FaceTime with Grandma at the hospital.
1: Nice. Very cool.
0: Yeah. And apparently my uncle sent her a birthday cake, her brother,
1: yesterday. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's cool. (laughs)
0: And we had friends sending all sorts of cards and stuff. And she hasn't said anything about them. I think it's because my dad was holding on to them and he brought a bunch for her Mm -hmm. birthday.
1: Oh, nice. That's so cool. Oh, my God. It's
0: just, I mean, it's been kind of a rough emotional time. I mean, I've been busy doing genealogy and stuff. And that leads me to something else Mm -hmm. I'm doing. Yeah. So, as you know, I'm wanting to work professionally at this. And I've been striving for that. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is genetic genealogy. So I've taken Mm -hmm. some webinars and I've been trying to learn as much about this as possible. Mm -hmm. And I'm on my first case. Wow. Congratulations. That's exciting. It's it's a family member. And right now I'm narrowing things down. I thought I had it, Uh but there's something that wasn't just right. So I'm like back at square one looking at it again. But yeah. Oh, my gosh. so much fun. It's like the ultimate puzzle. I love it so much. So if you're listening and you want somebody to do that for you,
1: call me. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. For the first year, you'll get me at a reduced rate. That's so cool. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm I'm
0: looking forward to doing this because I know it's going to help her out. And Mm -hmm. and that's the big key. Um, She's the daughter of an adoptee. And so we're just trying to figure that out for her yeah for health reasons mainly yeah so wow that's exciting I think think so so I'm just excited about doing that so what's been going on with you
1: Oh, um, but well, you know, it's been busy because you know I had family members get married. <laughs> another one announced a pregnancy, so we've got babies coming along, and um, it's all it's all very cool. I discovered a new podcast um, oh. that I hadn't known about, uh, called "God's Favorites," and it's by a TikToker I follow, Melissa Fairlady. But she basically mm-hmm. pulls these people out of history and then does kind of an, a deep dive. And the first one I listened to was Charles Lightoller, who was like the second lieutenant—or so, not lieutenant, but second mate on the Titanic—and survived oh, wow. the Titanic. And apparently, he had had this um, crazy life both before and after the Titanic. And so, and I—I I mesmerized. It took—I want to say like. They're about 20-minute segments, which is perfect for my attention span. And it Mm -hmm. took about four segments to get through Lightoller. But I was mesmerized every step of the way. So if you're at all into history, this is like a really fun podcast to listen to.
0: Yeah, I have one recommendation. I was sent a book by the author Nathan Dylan Goodwin. He's -hmm. also into genealogy and history. And he wrote a book. He's written more than one book. But um, it's self-published. And it's called Chester Creek Murders. Ooh. So it's a murder mystery, and it's about an unsolved crime. So it's been like 20 or 30 years. I can't remember. the. But um, they use DNA to solve the crime.
1: Oh, that's With genetic cool. genealogists
0: in it. And it's so good. And it's not just, you kind of get more into the lives of the people doing the research. There's a lot of little subplots that uh-huh. drive it around. And you could tell he was writing this at the time of the pandemic. Yeah. The pandemic plays a small role in the book. At least, okay. especially towards the end, because it's like right before the pandemic hits.
1: Oh, my gosh. Now, really quick, is this fiction or nonfiction? It's fiction. Oh, wow. And it's good? It was mesmerizing? Yeah, it
0: was really good. And what's so funny is I did a webinar right afterwards on genetic genealogy and some of that. And she brought up the book during the webinar. I talked oh. to the author, because he's the one who sent me the book. And I go, oh, my gosh, this is so funny. She was going on, and she go- he goes... That's where I got the idea for the book was her webinar.
1: Oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> it's like cool. a full
0: circle thing.
1: Wow, the world is very small.
0: Yes. Anyhow, CC Moore, if you ever listen to us, call me.
1: <laughs> I, I'd
0: love to work with you. <laughs> Anyhow, th- th- these are the fantasies I have.
1: <laughs> Speaking of fantasies, wow, isn't our person today a nightmare?
0: Definitely the opposite of a fantasy.
1: Yeah. For sure. For sure. He seemed
0: like such a nice guy to everybody.
1: I know. And like a good family man. A pillar of the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: But he wasn't. Well. Who are we talking about Zelda?
1: Robert Lee Yates. Mm -hmm. Now what was funny is when you told when you said this guy we're talking about as usual I'm like who? Who is this person? (laughs) I have no idea. I've never heard of this person but okay you know I'm sure I'm Mm -hmm. sure it'll be lovely. It'll be a great story right Oh, my gosh. Like, this bends your brain. And, like, okay, yeah. every serial killer bends your brain to some point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this was just, like, wow. I tried to hold off on some of these big wow ones. hmm I
0: like to pace them.
1: Like, once yeah. a month, mainly.
0: <laughs> if I'm going to do them.
1: <laughs> I get that. Because they're kind well, of overwhelming. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to jump on in then uh, for the right. first. So Robert Lee Yates was born on May 27th, 1952 and grew up in Oak Harbor, Washington in a middle class family that attended a local Seventh-day Adventist church. Mm-hmm. He graduated from Oak Harbor High School in 1970, where, I mean, he played baseball. He was, you know, had friends. He was considered, you know, good at baseball and got decent grades. And he had dreams of becoming perhaps a doctor. So he went on to basically kind of a community college and he earned an associate's degree in pre-med from Skagit Skagit I've no idea Skagit Skagit. We'll Skagit. go with Skagit. Skagit Valley College in 1972. Well, during this time, on August 27, 1972, he married a young woman he met at college named Shirley Nylander. Mm-hmm. But they had enough of each other after 18 months of marriage so they separated. Well, after that, a couple years later, on July 14th, 1974, He marries Linda Brewer, but then gets it annulled because he hasn't gotten around to divorcing Shirley yet. Yeah, that's a problem. I know. Apparently, the the law takes a dim view on that. It's weird. I know. I don't get it. The divorce is finalized on August 29th, 1974. And a few months later, Linda and Yates' daughter is born in December 1970. You know, there's some math involved here. Yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> um, and they get around to getting married again legally on July 24th, 1976. They eventually have five children together, four daughters and a son. So now Yates is known for having a bit of a temper, although not known at this time to be violent. This might explain all of his job hopping until he joined the military in 1977. His most notable firing being in 1975 when he was working at a company named Pantrol, and he was mad at a co-worker. So smeared feces on their door
0: Mm.
1: at another employer later in life. He got mad at his co-workers and threw hot coffee on them. So his young dreams of being a baseball star or a doctor were out of reach. So in October, 1977, Yates enlisted in the United States army in which he became certified to fly civilian transport airplanes and a helicopter. Okay. So I'm kind of digging this guy at this point. And you see a picture of him at that age. He's pretty cute. I mean, he's not I'm, unattractive. He is not. No. At Mm-mm. least not when he was younger. Yeah. Not when he was younger. <laughs> you know, pre-jail. He's kind of good looking. Pre-knowing what he did. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> So he was stationed in various countries outside the continental United States, including Germany and later Somalia and Haiti during the United Nations peacekeeping missions of the 1990s. He also served three years in the Army National Guard as a helicopter pilot from April 1997 through April 2000. Mm -hmm. He earned several commendations and service medals during his career, including the U.S. Army Master Aviator Badge. So as we said earlier, he was considered this good Christian family man, pillar of the community. And on the surface, everything looked like the shiny American dream, just like his shiny Corvette he took immense pride in as a serious car buff. Yates left the active duty army in April 1996, but he was like a year and a half short of being technically eligible, but the military was reducing his numbers. So basically he got full retirement, early retirement, Mm -hmm. despite being a little bit short. And then in 1997, he joined the Army National Guard and served three years. So it looks like he served a total of about 21.5 years in the military. Right. But during all this time, you know, Linda Yates' wife wasn't happy. She'd caught him a few years before burning credit card statements and saw receipts from a hotel for which, I mean, frankly, Yates gave some really lame ass excuses. (laughs) So she was convinced he was having an affair he denied everything they separated for a while but got back together for the sake of the children like they no people don't do this no it,
0: it probably causes harm to the children more than
1: yeah yeah this is our advice for them. just don't yeah. well then on november 10th 1998 a police officer pulled over yates's car with a known prostitute in the passenger seat yates said Uh, she's my friend's daughter and I'm driving her home. And the police like, okay, and kept doing it and went along their way. Well, two days later, his middle daughter, Amber, then 19, shows up at the county jail and says her father is hitting her all the time. So they, you know, go talk to him. And he told police, well, I held her by an arm and I slapped her face a little, but it was light and she was being very disrespectful. So they are like, oh, dude. And so they charged him with misdemeanor assault. Well, at least they charged him. Somebody would brush that off completely. That's kind of what I think. But what I don't, I haven't found, and maybe you were able to find this, was he actually, did he have to, was he prosecuted for it? Or was he just charged and then let go and it was dropped? Cause, I I can't remember. But I know I, what we could find out. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like, okay, so... He's starting to kind of be on their radar. Right. Then in December 1998, he becomes a scab and crosses picket lines to work at Kaiser Aluminum as a carbon setter. Now, this is the job where he got mad and threw hot coffee on his coworker. Ooh. Yeah. Not a way to make friends, by the way. No. So at this point, money is really short in the Yates household. Linda doesn't know where the money is going. Yates is pestering her to get a job. And she's been a stay-at-home mother this entire time. And she still had three children at home. So mm-hmm. they're fighting a lot. And Yates sells his beloved shiny Corvette and buys a Honda Civic. On April 18, 2000, the facade crumbles when Yates is arrested and charged the next day for the murder of a teen girl, Jennifer Ann Joseph, age 16, who'd been killed three years before in 1997. It's also mm-hmm. named a suspect, in 12 other murders. So you see... During this time, a serial killer has been on the loose in Washington State. Another one. Uh, exactly. Like another one. Because Gary Leon Ridgway was also active. So the police had a lot on their hands.
0: Right. And Ted Bundy at one point during And Ted Bundy.
1: Time. yeah. But wasn't he a little bit later? Maybe not. No, he wasn't. He was on the early end of it. Never mind. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Washington State. State of serial killers. Like, mm-hmm. have we ever done a lineup of how many states have serial killers? I have not. Like, but
0: California is pretty high, too.
1: Well, yeah, but population density-wise, you kind of expect that. Oh,
0: yeah. I haven't looked at this population-wise. That would be interesting.
1: I'm I'm intrigued. If anybody out there knows how to do math, could you handle that? Thank you. (laughs) Um, So, um, where were we? Okay. So, in the Spokane area, from 1975 to 1998, bodies of murdered sex workers were being discovered, all having been assaulted and then shot in the head with a Raven 25 caliber handgun. So, Okay. Seriously, the facade had actually begun to crack a few years earlier when someone tried to kill a woman by the name of Christine Smith in August 1998. Mm -hmm. She described the man as being about 50, foot 10 inches tall, blue eyed, and he had picked her up on East Sprague about 1 a.m. As she climbs into the car, she says, you're not the psycho killer, are you? Oddly enough, I ask this question to people all the time. And so far, I have asked... I have never met a psycho killer that I know of. So, so that is far, admitted to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it'd be weird to have two murderers in the same car, but hey, um, <laughs> as they drove to a secluded spot, he told her he was a helicopter pilot for the National Guard. He was not a murderer, he told her, because he had five kids and just wouldn't do that. He was calm and sober. He paid Smith $40 for oral sex. Then suddenly she felt a blow to her head. At first, she did not know what hit her. As blood gushed from the wound, she almost lost consciousness, but she managed to scramble out of the vehicle. She escaped and eventually went to the police. The police identified Yates as a suspect and requested a DNA sample. Okay. He refused Mm -hmm. to give it on the grounds it was indecent to ask such a thing of a family man. So what did the police do? Did they arrest him on the spot? No, they shrugged and moved along. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they did. So at the hospital, the wound was mistakenly deemed a knife cut and was sewn up with like three stitches. So it wasn't until 2000 when Smith was in a car accident that required a head x-ray that she discovered shrapnel. The 1998 attack had in fact been a shooting. She'd been too shaken at the time to realize it. And um, the, they were able to extract the shrapnel that had been embedded in her skull. Oh, geez. The police report had been buried, but... Then she's watching TV and she sees Yates on TV about you know being a suspect for these other murders. Right. And then she contacts the police again about her assault. They were able to trace the shrapnel to the handgun that had been used in the murders. So wow. he was then, you know, Yates was then definitively tied to Smith's attack. But it was the slick, shiny vintage Corvette that ultimately led the investigators to the suspect. A prostitute told police she had seen the killer's youngest victim. Jennifer Joseph, in the car nine days before her body was found. Joseph was a striking Asian-American teenager from Tacoma who had dropped out of high school only three months earlier. The hair of a Caucasian male was found on a towel near her decomposed corpse. Working through more than 6,000 tips associated with more than a dozen victims, police eventually compiled a database of all Corvette owners in Washington and Idaho and another of all Corvettes stopped by police checks. They tracked a car that had recently been sold and matched its carpet fibers to those on Joseph's shoes. Seizing the vehicle, they found bloodstains similar in genetic makeup to that of Joseph's parents, and they found a mother of pearl button identical to one on Joseph's blouse. They then tracked the car's previous owner. On April 18th, sheriff's deputies arrested Robert Lee Yates Jr., 47, on his way to work. His Honda Civic just coincidentally carried a bumper sticker saying, Why must I be surrounded by freaking idiots? I'm like, really? That's that's interesting. So forensic experts found his fingerprint on one of the plastic bags tied around a victim's head. And Yates' genetic profile from blood drawn after his arrest mm-hmm. matched semen found on the corpses. Of course it did. Now, most of his bodies were dumped in kind of remote areas. But one body, that of Melody Murphin, was buried in Yates' backyard. Yeah. His wife had absolutely no idea. His family had absolutely no idea because she, she was noticing weird things, but she was chalking it up to him having affairs. I know. You know but it's I don't, like
0: when, when they get so arrogant, they start burying the bodies in their yard. Yeah. Kind of like Harry yeah. Peter Reese, Rasmussen burying his wife in the, under the house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what was interesting is there were some comments he made later after all of this was over where... You know, he apparently had some sort of fondness for Melody and wanted to so he Yeah, he, it was pretty
0: yeah, sick. Yeah, I think I know what he wanted to do with her.
1: He was pretty sick. Yeah. So I'm glossing over a few things. So I don't blame you. Yates was charged with thirteen counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted first degree murder in Spokane County Superior Court. As part of a plea bargain in which Yates confessed to the murders to avoid the death penalty, he was sentenced to four hundred and eight years in prison. Charges were dropped in the murder of Sean Ann McClanahan. However, in a statement made by Yates, he apologized to her family and the other victims. Most of the people Yates murdered were women, but his first murder had been of Patrick Oliver and Susan Savage, mm-hmm. a young couple picnicking in the woods. Yates came across them while out hunting and decided to kill them. Just decided to kill them. Was like, just hey, ran
0: That That one just... Yeah, it was... Be, not to
1: use a pun, but that one blows me away. Yeah, seriously. Like, it was literally like... Well, could he not find a deer? I mean, like, Mm -hmm. what the hell? So, um, but, you know, Patrick Oliver was the only man he killed. He targeted women and he targeted sex workers, which, I mean, he got away with it for a really long time by choosing people that police were willing to shrug off. He was, he was smart. Actually, he does seem to be... Unlike most of the serial killers we've encountered who are of average or below average intelligence, Mm -hmm. he actually was a pretty sharp tack, you know, Um, and highly thought of by everybody who worked with him, the neighbors, people at the church, you know, it was crazy. So then in 2001, Yates was charged in Pierce County with the murders of two additional women. The prosecution sought the death penalty for the deaths of Melinda L. Mercer in 1997 and Connie Ellis in 1998, which were thought to be linked to the killings in Spokane County. On September 19, 2002, Yates was convicted of those murders and subsequently sentenced to death by lethal injection on October 3rd, 2002. Well, they appealed that death sentence because Yates believed his 2000 plea bargain to be all encompassing. And that so like... To cover everything you ever did wrong and that a life sentence for 13 murders and a death sentence for two constituted disproportionate freakish wanton and random application of the death penalty um no well and you know what the washington supreme court agreed with you the arguments were rejected in 2007 i mean i I do
0: think the life sentence is enough and the death sentence eh, whatever but the two don't come
1: equal no right Exactly, exactly. And then, so he had had an execution date set for September 19th, 2008. That was stayed by Chief Justice Jerry Alexander pending appeals. So then in 2013, you're going to love this. Yates's attorneys filed a habeas corpus petition in federal district court stating that Yates is mentally ill and through no fault of his own suffers oh, from a severe paraphilitic disorder that predisposed him to commit murder. So it was regarded as a long shot by most observers. Yeah, it was completely denied. And um, the Pierce County prosecutor, Mark Lindquist at the time, said, I don't think Mr. Yates helps his cause by relying on the fact he's a necrophiliac. Yeah.
0: I'm like. And for those of you who don't know, which I would be surprised, necrophilia is having sex with dead bodies.
1: Yes. and, And officially gross. Yes. disgust. I mean, yeah. So, of course, this doesn't stop him because in July 2015, the Washington Supreme Court again rejected an effort by Yates to overturn his conviction and death sentence after the Washington State Supreme Court ruled in 2018 that the death penalty violated the state constitution, though, Yates' death sentence, as well as that of Washington's other death row inmates, were commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah. To this day, Yates is sitting in jail in Washington State Penitentiary, hanging out, still alive don't write mm-hmm. him though don't fall in love with him i hear about people like this that's gross too don't be gross that's really bad i don't understand that i really don't but let me i, I just wanted to say one last thing before we turn it over to all the research you've done because i cannot wait to hear about this crazy <laughs> man's this this man's stuff so I, I really don't think Yates only uh, killed the identified victims. Oh, no. There's several years where there's no killings by Yates in the U.S. But during those times, he was stationed in other countries. Yes. So, yeah. So prosecutors in the U.S. sent DNA to Germany and other countries to help them solve unsolved murders of sex workers during the times Yates was stationed there. I haven't been able to find if any links have been made, though. Um, so mm-hmm. I suspect what... Honestly, what they probably did was say, you know what? The man's already in jail for life without possibility of parole. Do we want to waste resources on finding the the victims here? I, you know, because I think governments don't care. But anyway, that's, yeah, yeah.
0: Because I mean, I get that logic to a degree, but I'm sure the victim's families would like to know what happened and that who did what to them
1: oh i i completely agree with you yeah that being said yeah i don't trust the government to do the right thing just because it's the right thing to do run on or anybody really i mean i'm becoming very cynical as we do these (laughs) but that is the story of robert lee yates who will hopefully spend the rest of his days repenting for everything he did that one can help And that was an
0: excellent job as usual, Zelda.
1: Thank you so much. I worked hard.
0: You did did fabulous. And if y'all thought that was messed up, what your Robert Lee Yates did, wait until you learn what I discovered about his family tree. I cannot wait. And there are some lines I will say up front I did not get back on, mainly because I was running out of time. (laughs) Because this family is really large. So, as you said earlier, Robert was born in 1952, and he was born in Spokane, Washington. But his family hadn't been in Washington for all that long. In fact, as far as I can tell, the Yates line originated in Virginia. Well, after they crossed the Atlantic, of course, at some point. Although they were more recently from Tennessee. And his mother's family came from Wisconsin before going to Washington. But what brought these families to Washington, and when did they move here? Robert's father was Robert Lee Yates Sr., and he came from a large family in Tennessee, the eighth of 11 children. His older brother, Murphy, lived in Washington, and Robert needed a fresh start after the murder of their father, a topic we'll discuss in more depth later. Not long after settling in the area, Robert married divorcee and single mother of two, Mrs. Anna May Cleveland, sometime around 1950. Anna May, on the other hand, was born in Coopville, Washington to parents Henry Robert Eudarian and Verdi Bell Ostrom on August 26, 1926. Anna May also came from a large family and was the fourth of six children, only one of two girls. At the young age of 18, she married another boy just three years older from her town, Gerald R. Cleveland, in August 1945 in Seattle. They had two daughters, Shirley and Linda, during their short-lived marriage. And they were divorced probably by 1950, with Linda being born in 19, around 1949. Robert and Anna would have two children of their own, daughter Janice and Robert Lee Jr. I won't go into Robert's siblings, nor will I get into his daughters. Although, if you want to hear some of their perspectives, they've been fairly public. And there's an episode of American Monster on Investigation Discovery Season 2, Episode 2. Family snapshot covering Robert Lee Yates Jr. Oh, wow. And that's where you might learn a little bit more about what happened to him next after the incident with his daughter. And I know I've watched it a couple times. I just forgot (laughs) what that resolved as. Um, As for Anna Mae and Senior, after about 26 years of marriage, Anna Mae died in October, 1976, long before her son's crimes were discovered. Senior remarried to Cardeller, or she went by Carrie Rick. Although when they married is not clear, and he left Washington to retire in Arizona. As far as I know, he's still living. Oh, wow. So I have not seen any evidence that he has passed away. I looked for obituaries. Interesting. But, I mean, yeah, it's very feasible that he's still alive. So that's all I know on that. While Robert's mother, Anna, was born in Washington, as well as all of her siblings, so all his aunts and uncles, her parents were not native to Washington. Her father, Henry, was born in Marion, Wisconsin, in February 1889. And her mother, Verdie Bell, was born in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, in 1903, 14 years his junior. It's likely that Henry never planned on going to Washington as he grew up, but it's also clear he probably wanted some adventure in his life, something different than Wisconsin had to give him. By 1910, he was working as a ranch hand. Then, in December 1910... At the age of 21, he enlisted in the U.S. Army Coast Artillery Corps, and at first he was located at Fort Logan in Denver, Colorado. He served for three years in the Army, being honorably discharged at Fort Casey in Island County, Washington, where he would make his home. Hmm. Then World War I broke out, and Henry was re-enlisted in the Army, this time with the 161st Transportation Guard Service. And he would spend time overseas, as I found a travel manifest with him returning to the United States from France. Oh, cool. Henry was honorably discharged in June 1919. Then in August, he married Robert's grandmother, Verdie Bell. He was 30. She was 16. You And I'll be honest, I never did go very far up Verdi's line. I could probably work on this tree for a long time and not hit every line. Mm-hmm. Um, however, what I did find was fascinating with regard to her paternal grandmother, Elizabeth Caroline Brown. In fact, I'm wondering if she had a lot of rat poison in her house what i'm not oh, trying to what? disparage the woman or her character i'm sure her multiple husbands most seeming to die when she was married to them was an unfortunate luck on her part but wow she was married a lot back then wow and most of them i could never find them after they were married to her or they died i mm-hmm. so her first husband was william c More, warden agent an an, who she married in 1860 in sullivan county missouri They had no children from this marriage, and it's possible he died during the Civil War. I wasn't able to find him, so I'm not sure. Her second husband was Egbert Ostrom, who she married on the 1st of March, 1871 in Sullivan County. They had one son, Lloyd Edgar Ostrom, in 1872. This is the father of Verdi Bell, but they divorced soon after. Now, her son lived with her, so Lloyd Edgar lived with her. And when she was next married, William Gist, around 1875 in Missouri. That marriage ended sometime after 1880, because they were together on the 1880 census. Next came someone with the last name Denny, before the 1900 census, and she was listed as a widow.
1: Wow. And
0: now it could be there was a divorce, because sometimes people would say they were a widow if they divorced, because society's judgment on divorcees. Um, then there was a man with the last name Smith sometime between 1900 and 1910. They married and he either died or they
1: divorced. Wow. And he last, just kind of
0: disappeared. Yeah. I couldn't find a marriage record. So I couldn't find and, you know, her name Elizabeth Brown is not yeah. exactly uncommon. And even the Denning is Elizabeth Denning is a lot more common than you would think. <laughs> mm hmm. So trying to find a marriage record on some of these, especially during a time where marriage records were kind of scattered by state, Mm -hmm. was difficult. So, and last, there was widower Moses Reeves. The couple married on September 7th, 1920 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was 95 and she 85. She's living her best life. She loves men and men love her. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The the marriage ended this time at her death in January 1929 at the age of 94. He died 11 months later at 104. Oh my gosh.
1: Yes. Wow. That's awesome. Good on him.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So back to Henry Robert Udarian. After he and Verdi married, they made their home on Whidbey Island in Washington. Henry worked hard to provide for their family. At first, they rented a home and Henry worked as a common laborer. Then he was able to buy a home worth $4,000, at least according to the 1930 census. Granted, their neighbor's home was valued at $20,000, but he was moving forward and he was farming at this point. The job he would continue until he retired, and given that he lived in Washington, I'm sure that his grandson, Robert Jr., spent time with him and his grandmother growing up. Henry died in 1967 at the age of 78. Bertie Bell, with those great genetics going at her with her (laughs) mom, her mother, (laughs) would live another 28 years. Dying at the age of 92 in 1995. Wow. She was just on the edge of knowing what her grandson had been up to. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Henry's grandparents were immigrants from Germany. So, Robert's great-great-grandparents. And their name wasn't quite Eudarian. And and Eudarian spelled like the word U, -U Y-O-U-D-E-R-I-A-N. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't spelled like that. In fact, I might argue that anyone with the name Yudarian may be related to this family because I think the spelling was creative spelling on the family's part. Okay. Later on, to make it look like it might have sounded coming from German-speaking people. Although usually the G is a hard G in German. It could be that it was originally supposed to be a J for all we know. But <laughs> so... On July 13, 1861, Andreas Guderian, because it was originally spelled G-U-D-E-R-I-A-N, and his wife, Susanna Froelich, arrived in New York City aboard the SSR Cola from Hamburg with their four children, Wilhelm, Pauline, Wilhelmina, or she went by Minnie, and Gustav.
1: Oh, now wait, Minnie doesn't come to a bad end, does she?
0: No, she does not.
1: And that wasn't her, she wasn't named Minnie. That was her nickname. Okay, I feel better.
0: (laughs) They would travel across the country to settle where many other German immigrants found themselves, Wisconsin. More specifically, in Berlin, Wisconsin, and Green Lake County. His children settled into American life. Oldest son, Wilhelm, Americanized his name to William and enlisted in the army after the Civil War. To fight in the indian wars daughter minnie would marry another man from prussia albert norr and start a family son gustav robert's great-grandfather would americanize his name to august but he often went by gus so i'm going to kind of use the names interchangeably august and gus just fyi <laughs> and we'll circle back to him in a bit but i first want to talk about gus's sister pauline she married her first husband august feist in february 1865 not She wasn't even four full years in the United States, and she was likely 15. August was 40.
1: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, that poor
0: girl. hmm The couple would have a son, William, and divorce soon after. Pauline next married Emil Gustav Priba in October 1869. He was 26, she 19. Well, that's, that's reasonable. More reasonable. Yeah. They would have four children together before divorcing before July 1880, when Pauline married again, this time to August Mittelstadt, or at least I believe she married August. There's another gal who was named Pauline Prieba at the same uh-huh. around the same time. Oh no! So I keep going. I think it's the same one, but so oh, I can't man. say with great confidence it's the same. They make it complicated. But if if it was her, they did stay married. She didn't remarry after this one. But in October 1880. Tragedy struck Pauline. The newly you know, she's newly married. Tragedy strikes. On October 10th, her seven-year-old Ernest Priba died. Oh no. One week later, daughters Claire Matilda, age nine, and Minnie Helen, age two, died.
1: <gasps> How and did they die? A-
0: and one week after that, on October 24th, the last of the children by Emil and Pauline died. Little Albert Bernard, age five.
1: Oh my God, what happened?
0: I was unable to find any newspaper articles on the deaths. This was from the death index for Wisconsin. So I could request, I guess, a death certificate, but they might not have had a certificate per se. But I did find a snippet mentioning that there was a diphtheria outbreak in Green Lake County in October 1880.
1: Mm. Yeah, because I mean, it sounds like everybody got ill. That's what it sounds
0: like. Because if you're going to murder your children,
1: Mm -hmm. you're going to do
0: it all at once. Especially, I mean, if you're playing to kill them all in that month. This is somebody, Mm -hmm. they got sick. They had to have gotten really sick.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's tragic. poor family.
0: Yeah. Okay. So back to Gus, Pauline's brother, and the great-grandfather of Robert Jr. Gustav, as he was born, was born in August 1856 and was four when he arrived in New York City with his family. He was their youngest child. At the age of 24, he wed Alvina Marie Kolb, and the 18 year old daughter of German immigrants. By all appearances, the Guderian family had a happy existence in Green Lake County, or they never left. Well, at least Gus and Alvina never left. They would have 11 children their first born in 1883, and their last in 1903. And they were as evenly divided as between boys and girls as you can get with, get with the number 11.
1: Oh my gosh. Wow. With six boys,
0: five girls and their fourth oldest being Robert's grandfather, Henry Robert. Wow. Like his father before him, Gus worked as a farmer. In 1905, wife Alvina died. August married five years later to widow Mrs. Matilda Reimer. I found a notice in December 1924 that August had been ill but was improving. Then in January 1925, I saw that August's estate was on probate.
1: Oh no. So
0: apparently he took a turn for the worst after that. Nice little noticing. Oh, he's getting better.
1: Oh, poor guy. I know.
0: Now I did find a few interesting notes on a couple of Gus's grandchildren, and these are literally his grandkids, so they would be Robert Junior's first cousins once removed. Okay. I'll start with Harold Eudarian, son of Herbert Eudarian and Barbara Gilbert, born in 1929. Now Harold's father Herbert left Wisconsin before 1916 ending up in Montana, where he married Barbara. They were there a few years before returning to Wisconsin, where Harold was born. Harold must have had the need to go west like his father before him, as I found him in Seattle by 1947 when he married his wife, Shirley. And here's a quick side note. The couple remained married for 39 years until she divorced him in 1986. Oh, wow. I mean, that's being committed to a marriage and then going, yeah, I'm done wow how makes you you wonder what happened i know and i'm just kind of surprised it didn't happen sooner and you'll find out why so anyhow i think harold went out west to work on ships this is my theory at least because i found him as part of several on several ship manifests as a crew member in the 1940s the earliest one was 1945 when he was 16 so i'm guessing that having a family ended his career though at sea Because after that, no more shit manifests with his name on it. (laughs) And he would soon be working in a bank. By 1958, he worked as an assistant bank cashier. I know this because I stumbled on the following article in the Longview Daily News on November 11th, 1958. Assistant bank cashier admits 21 count charge. (gasps) Oh my gosh. An assistant cashier, Harold E. Udarian, 29, pleaded guilty Monday to two counts of a 21-count federal indictment charging him with embezzling money from the Guarantee National Bank at Suburban White Center. The two counts accused Udarian of embezzling $600 and falsifying bank records for that amount. The embezzlements occurred between October 30, 1956 and last August 14th. Assistant U.S. Attorney Joseph C. McKinnon said Udarian faces a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Judge John C. Bowen set December 1st for sentencing. Wow. Yeah. Well, on December 1st, he was sentenced by the judge to four and a half years in prison for embezzlement after pleading guilty to the two counts. And how much did he steal in total? $10,303.27, and today's dollars, that's $99,396.96.
1: Wow. So he got caught before he could tip over the 100,000 point.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So I'm kind of surprised he gets sent to prison and his wife doesn't divorce him then, (laughs) but 39 years was too much.
1: Wow. I mean, and it can't even be, we got to wait for the kids to be grown because the kids Mm -hmm. were well grown at that point, so... That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Harold wasn't the only grandson to make the news, though. There was one other who would make the news in 1956 and even have his story covered by Life magazine. August's son, Herbert, wasn't the only one to find his way to Montana. Son, William Paul, also made his way out west and married his wife, Verna Harris, in 1911 in Montana. But William would never return to live in Wisconsin like Herbert did. Instead, he stayed in Montana and raised his family of six children there. But the couple would divorce sometime between 1930 and 1940, after most of the children were grown, except for the youngest two, Theodore and Roger. So they probably did stay together until the kids were grown, type of situation there, because the Robert and Roger and Theodore were probably, when they divorced, early teens, at the time. So, Roger Dale Udarian. William Paul and Berna Harris's son, was born January 1924. He did very well in school and went to college at Montana State and Bozeman, where he ended up being the president of his fraternity. Then World War II broke out, and he went to service where he was a paratrooper, dropping over Normandy and Germany. At the end of the war, he moved in with his mother, who now lived in California, with plans to be a carpenter. But somewhere along the way, he changed his mind. And he decided to become a minister instead. So he enrolled in Northwestern Bible College in Minneapolis, where he met his wife, Barbara Orton. They married in 1951 and went to Lansing, Michigan, where his wife's family was from, where they would have two children. Then in 1953, the family left for Ecuador to be missionaries. Now, before I go further, I will say on a personal level that I now see missionaries in a new light than I did When I was younger, Mm -hmm. I know their hearts are generally in the right place, but I do find it problematic, this whole mindset Mm -hmm. that we need to change these people.
1: Yep. Mm -hmm.
0: It just seems like condescending. And I got to say this carefully, because I do have a cousin who spent many years in Ghana as a missionary with her family, Mm
1: -hmm. and her son
0: still lives there. And his family, they're missionaries. Mm -hmm. And I know their hearts are good. I just... There's so much problematic that I feel like it's trying to steal culture away from.
1: I can't speak to any particular circumstance, but I think in general um, that we're just looking at everything a lot differently. Yeah. You know, than we used to with that. You know, once you take American exceptionalism out of things, Mm -hmm. then everything looks very different. Yeah.
0: And, And I say this as somebody who when we were stationed in Germany, I made plans to run away to Africa And give all my money to all the poor people who needed it there.
1: Oh, my gosh. When you were a kid?
0: Yeah. Can you tell I was raised Southern Baptist from that at all?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was the message. You know, it's really funny you mentioned that when I was a kid. So I was raised Catholic, obviously. Mm -hmm. And when I was a kid, I remember distinctly when I was real little. I was like five or six years old. And um, I was splitting a wishbone with one of my brothers. And he won the wishbone, and I was inconsolable. I was crying so hard. Oh, wow. And my mom was just like, My God, what did you wish for? You know, what toy did you want? What was it? And I was like, I wish for all the hungry babies to be fed. And I was like, (laughs) Now they're going to starve to death, and it's my fault. (laughs) I'm like, Five years old, Catholic guilt instilled. You know, like. (laughs) It was so crazy. My mother was; she reassured me it would all be okay. But it was, <laughs> but just she was just
0: probably like, in her head, going, "Oh, she's got such a good heart. I'm raising yeah, her I, right." She probably was. She was
1: like, "I'm oh like my girl," you know.
0: But anyway, she, <laughs> okay. Well, anyhow, so let's go back to Roger and his wife Barbara. In early January 1956, Roger, along with Nathaniel Saint, Peter Fleming, T. Edward McCully Jr., and James Elliott took a plane and flew into a valley in an Ecuadorian jungle, landing their plane near the Curare River along the Peru-Ecuador border on January 3rd. They set up a hut to live in. Their goal was to stay there and reach those that they hadn't before with the word of God. And they did have people approach and they did try to give gifts and do exchanges. And I know a couple of them spoke the language and those types of things. On January 8th, Nathaniel St. radioed his wife to let her know that all was well and that he would call back at 4.30 and said, Here comes a group of Akkas. We have not known them before. And got off the radio to greet these new people come, approaching them. That would be the last anyone would hear from the group. Oh, wow. The next day, another group of missionaries, and then later on a U.S. Air Force rescue helicopter, would fly to the area in search of them. What they saw from the air worried them. The Piper Cub they flew in was stripped, and there appeared to be a body laying near it. Searchers hoped to find the other missionaries alive and would fly over the area several times. On January 11th, they found the other four laying downstream on a beach. An Air Force ground crew came together to recover their bodies, and what they found was horrifying. All the bodies were found pierced with Aka spears, and some had machetes taken to their bodies. The bodies were buried near the missionary camp, although one was not as it disappeared into the river before it could be recovered. The burial was quick due to concerns of another attack by the Aka people before they could leave. In the Life article, there is a picture of Roger tied to a canoe to help move him in the river. You can't see his face, thank goodness. (laughs) But the caption noted that he was pierced by spears twice, once in his hip and another found in his back. I also read an account that he was stabbed in the back as he rushed to the plane to radio for help. Mm-hmm. To this day, particularly amongst evangelicals, this group are considered martyrs to Christianity and heroes. There even has been a movie made starring A-lister Chad Allen. He's Who's not Chad A-lister. Chad
1: Allen? I was like... Do I know Chad Allen? Yeah, I'll,
0: I'll, like, hold on a second. Who's Chad Allen? I should have been prepared because I know him on site, but I can't remember what he was in. <laughs>
1: Wow. Well, I mean, I can understand why they'd be regarded that way, you know. Um, But
0: they weren't. Here's my only problem. I don't think they were murdered because they were Christians.
1: Why do you think they were murdered?
0: I think they were murdered because they were they didn't know these people and they saw them as a threat.
1: Oh, well, yes, I I imagine that's true. They probably couldn't communicate well enough to say their purpose for being there. But um, because
0: they weren't there long enough to really be, you know, like they weren't. Yeah, I just, I think to put it as oh well they were um, martyrs for Christianity is a little bit of a stretch. Um, Chad Allen
1: was in Doctor Quinn Medicine
0: Woman. He was one of the her kids or something.
1: Oh, okay. I he, she had a couple kids, so I'm not sure which one it was, but that's cool. That's his claim to fame. He played Matthew Cooper for 146 okay. episodes
0: or something. So.
1: Wow, good on him.
0: And there's also been documentaries made. There's books. It's this whole. Wow. There's kind of almost like a, a thing around it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I'm not mistaken. It was tragic, and Mm. some things. I mean, the guys took a risk going in, and apparently after the fact, the wives were like, "Well, we're so proud of our husbands," and
1: yeah. Well, I mean, what else are they going to say? I mean, it's, okay. oh, well, I it's their husband who got killed, and and you know, should they have been there? You know, obviously in retrospect that was a really bad plan, right? Um, I, I'm not and blaming,
0: it, and I'm not blaming them for their deaths. I don't think that's the cause. I think you learn yeah. from a situation like this. Yeah, it's just ultimately tragic. The one thing I will say for the wives is they told they actually begged the Ecuadorian government not to punish the Acas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're like it's not. They they were doing what they thought they needed to do to protect their people. They didn't mm-hmm. understand, right? So I will so, say that it was a positive that came from that
1: that there wasn't revenge in yeah. their hearts. I think that speaks ex- volumes to the kinds of people.
0: Yep. Now, if this seems like a lot thus far, we're only halfway through the family.
1: Oh my god, god, are you kidding me? <laughs>
0: nope. Whew. I haven't yet discussed Robert's father's side of the family. The I should brought
1: snacks. Hmm. <laughs>
0: um so and oh boy get ready for a ride robert's father robert elijah lee yates is a tennessean because he you know he's still alive as far as we know he was born in denton texas on july 30th 1929 the eighth of 11 children who <laughs> to his parents john taylor yates and delma novella johnson he only spent a short couple years in texas though moving to his parents moving to his parents' home state of Tennessee by the time he turned eight. But life in Van Buren County, Tennessee, was likely not a happy one. There were tensions and strife between his parents that became readily apparent by 1945. On October 18, 1945, when Robert Sr. was 16 years old, tragedy and murder struck his home.
1: Oh no, what happened?
0: Van Buren Farmer dies of axe blow. Oh <gasps> Oh no. Um, John Taylor Yates, 55, Van Buren County farmer, died at the medical clinic and hospital here last night of wounds allegedly inflicted as he slept at his home in the McElroy community early last Saturday morning. His wife, Mrs. Novella Johnson Yates, was arrested on a charge of felonious assault following the attack and later released from the Warren County Jail under bond of $3,000. Oh
1: my God. Yeah. This was Robert Lee Yates' grandparents. Yes. Oh my God.
0: Following the death of her husband, the charge against Mrs. Yates remained unchanged late today. Sheriff Eldridge Youngblood, after a conference here with the Sheriff of Van Buren County, stated that Mrs. Yates struck her husband as he slept, the blade of the axe penetrating to the brain, inflicting additional minor head wounds. And apparently she struck four times. I've read in other accounts. Besides his wife, Yates is survived by seven sons, three daughters, and funeral services will be conducted tomorrow afternoon. Wow. Yeah. Now, due to a lack of newspapers from McMinnville, Tennessee, I was unable to find out what happened next. Hmm. Now, there was a small mention of Novella murdering her husband in the spokesman review while Robert Yates Jr. was on trial. Some good reporter found it you know but they were also unable to find out what happened next
1: (laughs) wow and that's
0: telling because the reporter they have their sources they probably would have called the local paper they would have Mm -hmm. done different things i didn't do um so they were unable to find out what if any punishment novella faced nor do we know if novella ever knew robert yates jr because she was she didn't die right away She was alive for a bit longer. So, if anyone from that area knows what happened to her, please let us know and we'll follow up.
1: Wow. Now,
0: before Novella whacked Senior's father's head with an axe four times, John Taylor Yates was born in December 1890 in Bone Cave, Tennessee. Like his son and even younger children, John lost his father at a young age. At least this time, it wasn't murder as far as I know. In May 1915, he married Delma, who was also a local girl, and she could relate to the loss of a father as she grew up without her father in her life as well, Mm. as he died when she was just shy of her fourth birthday. Oh, wow. Now, I won't go into too much depth with Robert's grandmother, Delma, but at least go over the basics, although I doubt it will explain why she killed her husband with an axe. I can't let that go um Mm -hmm. delma was born in august 1892 the seventh child of parents james monroe johnson and Fanny elizabeth belzoria tosh my goodness that is a name that is a name it's usually written out as fanny eb tosh wow (laughs) and like the yates family they were longtime residents of tennessee and in particular van buren county james monroe died in 1896 not long before delma turned four Her mother now had four children under 10 at home to raise on her own. In 1901, Fanny remarried, this time to a man 10 years her junior, Hopkins Turner Johnson. So she didn't even have to change her last name again. (laughs) (laughs) The little things. They would have a son together. Sadly, Hopkins would die just five years later. In the 1910 census, I found Fanny and three of her children living with her 83-year-old father, Daniel Tosh fanny would never marry again she died in 1924 at the age of 68 just one year after her father daniel died when he was 96 and that's what i have on delma's family but let's go back to john and delma specifically they had their first child ernest ray yates 11 months after they married then they had a child every other year or so until they reached number 11 in 1937 with their youngest mary Catherine yates the couple set up a home in Van Buren County, which is 100 miles southeast of Nashville and about 60 miles north of Chattanooga. The county is sparsely populated today with only 5,700 residents and the in the of whole of the county. Yeah. Wow. And it's and the county is about 275 square miles. At the time the couple married, there were only 2,700 people in all of Van Buren County. So it was even less populated than it is today. Wow. I will say, though, that the area is beautiful and holds a gorgeous state park, Falls Creek Falls, with a waterfall that drops over 250 feet.
1: Have you been there, I take it?
0: Yes. It's very pretty. Now, I I used to live in Tennessee, so it wasn't that far. (laughs) Um, Now, I don't believe the family was well off. Actually, quite the opposite. John worked as a farmer or for other farms as a laborer, possibly a tenant farmer. And I suspect financial reasons why he took his family down to Dallas, Texas between 1925 when daughter Bernie Lorraine was born in Tennessee and 1927 when daughter Melba Louise was born in Dallas. So right around there. The family returned to Tennessee between 1933 and 1937. In the 1940 census, John listed his job as farm manager, so perhaps his fortunes had improved in Tennessee. After his murder, so five years later in 1945, Delma would remain in Tennessee I do wonder if she might have been hospitalized for her crime or she was released. Um, I do know she died in the hospital, but it could have been she was sick. So you just don't know. Uh,
1: yeah, for sure.
0: And I can't wait until the 1950 census comes out in April. Not that I'm counting down. So I can find out that information. Cause I want to know in the meantime, Delma would outlive the husband she murdered for 20 by 26 years, dying at a hospital in Warren County, Tennessee, in early January 1972. Oh, and I found the following quote from her obituary weirdly amusing and disturbing at the same time. <laughs> and it, it's a typical line that you see in a lot of obituaries. But knowing that she murdered her husband, tell me how this sounds to you. Okay. She was preceded in death by her husband, John T. Yates, in
1: 1945.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Preceded I mean, they, they could have just not mentioned him at all mm-hmm I've seen that happen that is
1: yeah that's yeah. interesting that's very interesting but
0: why they would mention him and it hadn't been a child who put it together you would think hmm
1: wow boy
0: who knows and it could have come out that he had been beating her and so they figured she was justified and so they
1: like yeah or they felt that he should still be acknowledged you know yeah. maybe his little twist you know or something like that who knows so,
0: I just found that wow. odd <laughs>
1: <laughs> John Taylor
0: Yates would not be the only murder victim in the family. And Novella, not the only murderer. Apart from Robert Lee Yates, of course. No, there were more. Oh my God. I went as far back as Robert's great-great-grandparents, or John Taylor Yates's grandfather, to Reverend John Yates and his third wife, Roseanne McBride. And Roseanne's parents were John McBride and Nancy Cummings. Oh, and um, just so you know, John Yates... Reverend John Yates and his father-in-law, John McBride, were about the same age, only three years apart. Oh, my. But We'll come back to that in a minute. (laughs) Reverend John Taylor was born in 1790, Virginia. Any more than that, I do not know. I do believe he headed west either on his own or with his family and settled in Tennessee around 1810 or a little bit before. And he got married to Lavina Collins around 1810 and she was mother to his first three children, Levi, Eli, and George Washington. Now, it's likely she passed away, and that's why John married again, this time to Elizabeth Nichols, or Betty, just two years his junior. They married in Williamson County, Tennessee, in August 1824. And Betty would be the mother of six of his children, Malvina, or Viney, John Jr., Larkin, Alvin, Elizabeth, and their last, Wyatt, in 1837. Wow. It, it likely seemed that John was done fathering children. In the 1860 census, he worked as a minister of the gospel, while Betty worked as a spinstress. They owned real estate valued at $500 in Van Buren County, with a personal estate of $408. Not a lot, but they also weren't struggling as others were, because they actually owned property. They had their children living near them, and life was good. Then Betty died likely soon after the 1860 census was taken. While John didn't need a wife to care for young children because all his children were now grown and flown, he married again one last time to Roseanne McBride Hayes, a widow with a son in 1861. He was 71. She was 28. Oh my goodness. How old was her son? He was a little like two or, I mean, like four maybe. Wow. Yeah. Roseanne would have... Eight of John's 17 children.
1: Holy moly. Yeah. Whoa, that is like there's snow in the roof, but a fire in the belly. Wow. That
0: guy liked making babies. Their oldest child was Lee Grant Yates, father of John Taylor Yates and great-grandfather to Robert Lee Yates Jr. He was born in January 1862, then followed Jabez Wayman, Barfine, Lucinda, Luther Clint, Mary Eveline, or Eva, and Anne.
1: Best for last.
0: Now, <laughs> Reverend John lived a long life, dying at age 96 in 1886. Hmm. But because he was older when he got married, he ended up leaving five minors in his home for Roseanne to raise. And raise them she did. In the 1900 census, I found Roseanne listed as a farmer, Her son Wayman lived with her and worked as a school teacher. They must have been doing okay as they had a live-in servant or a farmhand. I mean, he was listed as a servant, but I believe he was a farmhand. And she also lived next door to one of her sons. In 1910, Roseanne died at the age of 76. Her son Wayman, Robert Lee's great granduncle never married and died just four years later at the age of 47. Before we go elsewhere with this family, I do want to take a minute and discuss one child of John and Roseanne's. Luther Clint Yates, and he went by the name Clint. Clint was 13 years younger than his oldest full sibling, Lee, Robert Lee's great grandfather. Around 1898, he married Isa Josephine Stakely, daughter of Priscilla Stakely, and his sister in law. Oh, wow. Isa's sister was Elizabeth Constant, or Betty Stakely, and she was the wife of Lee Yates, therefore, the great grandmother of Robert Lee Yates, Jr. That's cool. And Isa and um, Betty had three other sisters who did not marry any other Yates brothers. So it was just those two. Okay, so back to Clint. Clint and Josephine had four children. Josephine would die at age 52 of typhoid in 1934. In 1938, I discovered the following about her two youngest children, Virginia, or as she was known, Virgie, and Luther Vaughn, who went by his middle name, Vaughn. This was in the Nashville Banner on November 26, 1937. Tennessean held in fatal shooting. And this, the article comes from Muncie, Indiana. Police today held Vaughn Yates, 26 year old Tennessean, in connection with the honor slaying of Ezra Cole, 30, of Bone Cave, Tennessee. Cole, dis- Cole died yesterday of gunshot wounds received last Sunday. Mrs. Virginia Cole, 29, widow of the slain man and Yates' sister, was held as a material witness. Yates told police he shot Cole because the latter had stolen his sister and brought her to Muncie. Yates will be held pending grand jury investigation of the shooting, authorities say. Wow. I gotta tell you, I'm pretty sure this would become the crime of the century at that point for Muncie, Indiana. (laughs) I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. So I see this article, and of course I have to know more. So I found newspaper articles on the trial and the verdict. Here are some of the highlights. These are all snippets from the Muncie Evening Press, and the first set are from March 15, 1938, the first day of the trial. Virgie Yates, who has spent all but five months of her 30 years in Bone Cave, Tennessee, told in Randolph Circuit Court this morning how a mock wedding ceremony led to the shooting of her lover on a Muncie Street last October 20th and to the indictment of her brother Vaughn for first and second degree murder. Mountain Justice, the shooting has been called, but the prosecutor has asked the jury to convict the 26-year-old Vaughn. And then it shared her testimony. So I'm going to just read some of this article. What's your name? Virgie was asked when she took the stand as the first state witness. Well, I reckon it's Virgie Yates, what's always been, she told Higgy. She said she had known Cole 15 years and had spent all of her life in Bone Cave until she came to Muncie with him last October. Did you go with Ezra Cole, as we call it up here? Higgy asked. I saw him, but we had a talk on the slide. That was last winter. She was asked if she and Cole were in Woodbury, Tennessee last May 8th. That's where they said it was, she answered. Woodby was the town where she thought she was married to Cole. We went into a building, she said. It wasn't the courthouse. There were two men in the room and one wrote on a piece of paper. Ezra paid one of them. Did you sign anything? No. Where did you think you were? Well, he told me it was the marriage license bureau. Virgie said she, Cole, and Clarence Stakely lived in the same room in in Whiteley after they came to Muncie. The night of the shooting, Virgie said she and the two men drove up to their house, all sitting on the front seat of the automobile. When we arrived home, Ezra got out and I followed him. The girl said a man came walking up. He was about five or six feet away when I first saw him. He kind of placed his hand or started to on Ezra's arm. Ezra said, look out here and jumped behind me. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> he asked why she didn't recognize the man and she said it was dark. I ducked out from Ezra's arms and Bond stepped back into the light. Virgie continued. I screamed, it's Bond. And I fell before I could get up. A shot was fired. I heard two shots. Wow. But he hides behind her. He's going to put her at risk. What a man. Wow.
1: Wow.
0: Okay. Here's some other notes from the trial. The Yates family lived in an area far removed from civilization, according to the defense. And, you know, it's not very populated. I'm guessing for the city folk quote-unquote, in Muncie, that would seem like, ooh, there's no civilization. But they did establish that they weren't even sure there was a grocery store in their county or near them. Wow. Um, Clint was a widower at this point, raising two of his girls at the house alone. Ezra Cole had spent several years visiting the Yates family. And at first, the oldest daughter, Minnie, Elba, was his focus, who found herself pregnant by Ezra. Mm. Now, she was separated from her husband at this point. She had been married, and while she had an extra child, and and people, it's so funny because I notice on um, people's family trees they think that the man she was married to was the father. And I'm like, I sent a couple messages. You might want to change it. There's this article you might want to check out because I'm pretty sure that's Ezra Cole's child.
1: Wow. (laughs) Just
0: saying. After he was done with Minnie, though, he moved on to her sister Virginia. Virginia really did believe she was married, but her father couldn't find any evidence that they were. So she, he told his son, Vaughn. Vaughn didn't want what happened to Elba or Minnie, to happen to Virginia, so he went to Muncie to bring her home. He claimed that he did speak, and Ezra hit Vaughn in response, then pulled out a knife. So Vaughn pulled out his gun and shot him. <laughs> and then he said that um, he had backed away and fell down as Ezra approached him, and so he fired once more, killing Ezra. Now, the prosecutor was like, no, this isn't self-defense, because... <laughs> This was all pre-planned. Vaughn knew he was going to shoot Ezra because he took the gun with him from Tennessee up to Indiana and apparently told the cab driver to wait and, quote, I may get caught, but it's worth it. Oh, my God. Yes. Wow. When the police arrested Vaughn, he said, Well, if they was married, I made an awful mistake. If not, I'm glad of it. (gasps) Oh, my God. As the trial continued the next day. So that was just notes from the first day. And at this point, we're kind of unclear whether or not they were actually married, right? It it comes out they were not married. She was fooled.
1: Oh, my God! As the
0: trial continued the next day, the courtroom was packed. The spectators would applaud whenever a good point was brought up from either side. (laughs) The judge admonishing them (laughs) several times. Vaughn said he came to Indiana to find the man who besmirched his family's honor. And he testified on his own behalf. And here's a following quote from his testimony. My intention was to ask Cole if he had legal right to live with my sister. He didn't seem to want to settle it that way. I didn't intend to hurt him or anyone else. When I pulled the trigger the second time, he kind of fell back and hollered that he was shot. Wow. Now, to say this trial was well covered would be an understatement. I mean, this was
1: huge for Muncie, Indiana. I was going to say it'd be huge for Muncie, Indiana now.
0: (laughs) Wow. Every bit of testimony was published in the paper each night. The witnesses were all listed. The jury members, two women and ten men, were all listed by name. Everybody knew every detail. Wow. Closing arguments were made on March 17th, the third day of the trial, with the prosecutor pointing out that they never found the knife that Ezra Cole supposedly had. (laughs) That was brought (laughs) up Yeah. And the defense never produced a knife. The defense claimed Vaughn saved his sister from white slavery. Yeah. Wow. The next day, March 18th, the verdict came back. What do you think the verdict was?
1: I'm going to say not guilty by reason of he needed killing.
0: You got that right. woo Not guilty and a cheer came from the spectators of the trial. In fact, several spectators came up to Vaughn to shake his hand at the end.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep. Probably would still happen in Indiana today.
0: In parts of Tennessee, I'm sure. Okay, before we move on, I thought I would mention that there were a couple more instances of crime in the Yates line. Lee's younger brother by two years, um, Clint's older brother, Jabez, got in some legal trouble himself. I found an article in the Nashville Banner on April 30th, 1924, with the following headline, Drove of Hogs Tank Up on Beer Pitched in Ditch.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Apparently,
0: Jabez was a moonshiner, and during Prohibition and was caught with two others in Van Buren. The raiders destroyed 40 gallons still and poured out 500 gallons of beer into a ditch. So I think you see where this is about to go. Well, they did this at another location as well, several miles down the road, this time emptying out 800 gallons of alcohol. Oh my gosh. Well, at the second location, there were hogs. And according to the article, a herd of swine rushed up the flowing ferment and plunged into the ditch. They drank greedily of the liquid and became drunk. The officers report that they tarried half an hour in order to drag the animals out of the trench to prevent their drowning.
1: Wow. (laughs) And the hogs are like, leave me alone. This is the best. That's so funny.
0: And speaking of moonshiners, let's talk about Lee's oldest son, Murphy, Robert Lee's granduncle. Born in 1886, he left Tennessee and moved to Colorado where he met and married a Kansas girl, Donna Barber. They had one child. Now, the 1810 census had him listed as a farmer with a new claim. But according to his find a great page, Murphy was working as a U.S. revenue agent um, in 1912. So a job that would allegedly lead to his murder by moonshiners in either Kentucky or Tennessee. Now, so it says it was a little note. He died by this. Nobody knows where he died. I do want to note that I cannot verify the story. I'm sure it, maybe it's family legend. And they just posted the family legend. I don't know. It could be true. But I did look and I couldn't find anything. Wow. Yeah. Since I just mentioned Lee Yates a few times, remember he was Robert Lee's great-grandfather. It's time I discuss his wife, Robert's great-grandmother, Betty Stakely. Mother of murder victims John Taylor and Murphy Yates. Allegedly Murphy Yates. Hmm. Betty's family, like the Yates, were longtime residents of Van Buren County. Betty, born in 1871, was nine years her husband, Lee Yates, Jr. And while that typically is a non-issue, in this case, it just may be. You see, they married when Lee was 22, and Betty was still four months away from her 14th birthday.
1: Ew!
0: Yeah. After Lee's death at age 35 in 1897, Betty remarried around 1906 to a man 17 years her senior David Ashford Martin. Together they had one son. David died nearly 30 years before Betty, who passed away in April 1961 at the age of 90. Wow. I typically don't like to assume anything, but the fact that Betty married not just one uh, man older than herself as a teen, and who knows, Mm -hmm. there there could have been a situation where she kind of was forced into it. We don't know. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: But the fact that she did it a second time makes me think she might have had some daddy issues. This wouldn't be a surprise given that there seemed to be no dad for her growing up. And this is where it gets extremely interesting. I double and triple check to make sure I wasn't missing anything or made a large error. If someone knows this family and I, in fact, did make an error, please let me know. For what I found was her mother Priscilla in each census until her death was listed as single. She never married. Today, this is not unheard of, but given that Priscilla was born around 1847, that is exceedingly rare to be unmarried and have children. Yep. And I don't know if the girls all shared a father or if they were all different fathers. Why do you know, given the size of the community, is Priscilla was likely the subject of much gossip.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Wow. Now,
0: Priscilla was the youngest daughter of Wiley Lewis Stakely, or Willie, as he was sometimes referred to, born around 1806, and wife Priscilla Lewis, and the ninth of their ten children. Sadly, Priscilla Lewis Stakely would die when daughter Priscilla was just three years old. Priscilla's father would follow just nine years later in July 1859. So at the age of 12, both of her parents are dead. Oh my. In the 1860 census, I found her living with her oldest sibling, Clarinda, who was 17 years older, and her husband, Ichabod Mitchell.
1: I love both their names.
0: <laughs> Priscilla's other young siblings were scattered amongst family members. Priscilla would have her first child at age 14 or 15 in 1862. Wow. What I wouldn't give to look at the DNA <laughs> on that family line. Just yeah. saying. Because I have theories given where she was living, but I'm not positive. Yeah. by 1870, she was living in her own home with two daughters and a personal estate of $6. Okay. So times are tough. By 1880, she now had five children, one just one month old at the time of the census. She would give birth to her youngest daughter, her sixth child, in August 1881. What I found even more fascinating was her answer to a question in the 1900 census. Now, the 1900 census asked all women how many children they had given birth to and how many were still living. Her answer? She had given birth to ten children with only seven living.
1: Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Wow, that poor woman.
0: Yeah. In 1883, she had a son, Willie Stakely, short for William. Priscilla died in 1917 at the age of 69. She never married. Now, Priscilla had a brother named after their father, Wiley J. Stakely, and he was a former Confederate soldier. In fact, he was the oldest living Confederate soldier in White County, Tennessee when he died. Wow. But I need to tell you a problem I ran into. There were several Wiley Stakeleys, all living in the same general area of Tennessee, all around the same age. Oh, no. (laughs) Trying to distinguish between them in the newspaper was a major challenge. And I actually made a couple mistakes. And so I was going through it and writing stuff up. I'm like, oh, crap. That's that Wiley's, And that's that one. And so I lost some material. That's probably good. Uh Anyhow. (laughs) So the first part of the story I'm about to tell may be about another Wiley Stakely. I think it isn't. I think this is about her brother. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Robert Lee Yates's uncles. But I, I had to say that in, in just in case I have it wrong. And the story's too good not to share. Because if it does apply to this Wiley Well, it brings another murderer into the family. Wow. But as you've said before, maybe the guy just needed killing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that wasn't my opinion. I'm just I,
0: saying that <laughs> you've joked about it in the past. I don't believe in that, but at least he might have needed some justice. So, once upon a time in Tennessee, there lived a man by the name of Bud Carter. Bud Carter was a bit of an outlaw, or as the papers would later describe him, a desperado. First and foremost, though, he was a horse thief known to get in trouble with the law. The troubles with Bud seemed to begin in March 1869, when he decided to steal horses out of White County, Tennessee. a county just to the north of Van Buren and likely close to where the Stakeleys lived. I get the impression the Stakeleys were close to the border up there. In fact, the Stakeley family might have straddled the county line almost, or switched places on occasion, because sometimes they're listed as being in White County, and the other day they're in (laughs) Van Buren. Well, I digress. So as I said, he decided to steal horses out of White County, Tennessee. So a posse was formed to chase after this horse thief and his partner in crime, James Wilson, led by the White County Deputy Sheriff, John Elliott. Wiley Stakely, William B. Hill, and John Templeton joined in the chase. They were part of the posse. The posse was able to catch Carter at Browns Ferry in northern Alabama before he took the ferry across the Tennessee River. Shots were fired between Carter and the posse, and a chase ensued. Carter ended up surrendering because he had been shot and lost a lot of blood. After Carter was in custody, his partner in crime, Wilson, approached everyone after he had been at the bar drinking some whiskey and didn't know what was going on. And he didn't realize that was the law and got arrested himself. Fast forward a few months to August, 1869, and Bud Carter has escaped from jail. Instead of disappearing, like a smart man might do, (laughs) he decided to kidnap William B. Hill, one of the posse. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Carter took Hill into the mountains, then ransomed him for $2,000. Carter told Hill's friends that if he didn't get the money, he would kill Hill. Now, why would he kidnap him? Well, yeah, (laughs) because he was in this posse. He wanted revenge. And this wasn't the first time he had dealt with William Hill because apparently Carter once stole horses directly
1: from Hill. Oh, my God.
0: And they caught him near Athens, Georgia at the time. So the kidnapping was revenge on Carter's part. And Hill's friends raised the money and took it to the designated location. And Hill was released. Then on August 29th, 1869... So just a little bit, a couple weeks forward from when the um, kidnapping happened. The following article appeared in the Nashville Union and American. The notorious Bud Carter killed his murderer unknown. A correspondent at McMinnville informs me that the notorious Bud Carter of White County, who made William B. Hill pay $2,000 for his ransom recently, was killed at the forks of the road near Rock Island in Warren County. On the night of 26th, it is not known who killed him. A large ball passed through his head and many smaller ones through his body, thought to be buckshot. Wow. But who killed him? Was it Hill in revenge for his kidnapping? After Hill's release, Carter next threatened, though, to kill Wiley Stakely in revenge for the Alabama arrest, as well as others in the posse. The Nashville Union would release an article on the killing and the perpetrators on September 3rd titled, How Bud Carter, the Tennessee Desperado, was killed. Wow. And who provided the story? Wiley Stakely and John Templeton.
1: (laughs) Ha ha ha.
0: And this this story would be covered in papers nationwide.
1: Wow. And it wasn't
0: front page. It was a small article, but it was Mm -hmm. multiple papers. And the article gave a detailed account of on what happened and why. It seems Bud repeatedly threatened to kill all the members of the posse who arrested him in Alabama. After the kidnapping of Hill, Stakely and others realized he was serious. So Wiley, Stakely, and Templeton armed themselves and kept a lookout for Carter. Then on August 25th, they came across Carter and Van Buren County at a local watering hole, Jim Clark's drinking shop. So they went ahead to the fork in the road and hid themselves, knowing that Carter would need to ride by. Then Carter rode up and for some reason, this part is unclear to me and nobody seems to explain it, Carter dismounted. He apparently hadn't seen the others, or maybe he had, that part's not clear. So Wiley and his friend Templeton shot Carter with their double-barreled shotguns. As Carter lay dying, the pair walked up to him, then shot him with pistols to make sure he stayed dead.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So what happened to Stakely and Templeton? Nothing. Nothing at all. They didn't run, and they didn't get arrested. They handed out that mountain justice and went on with their lives. Mm -hmm. But that's not all when it comes to Wiley Stakely, because I have a postmaster alert. (gasps) <gasps> really yes on may 1st 1893 so over 20 years later wiley stakeley was appointed the postmaster for campground tennessee and white county
1: oh that's nice
0: yeah. what's funny is there is another wiley stakeley at a neighboring county that was appointed postmaster a year before him and they were only four years apart in age oh funny but that wiley stakeley that was nearby He had another son. He had a son named Wiley, and that why he he um stole stuff from the U.S. mail and got in trouble. Oh my gosh! I'm I'm sure they got to be distant cousins. I just didn't assess that far. Wow! And that is the family tree of Robert Lee Yates Jr.
1: Oh my gosh! This was a roller coaster.
0: (laughs) It's something. Wow.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay, so how many murderers in that family do we know of then so far? Uh, Two or...
0: Well, if you count Robert, I
1: would say at least three. Okay. I
0: might have lost count, though.
1: And then we have the young... The woman who had a whole bunch of husbands and seems pretty suspect. Suspicious, yeah. Okay. Wow. That is fascinating. I
0: think we can see where some of this came from.
1: Wow. At least the crazy... Considering that Robert Lee Yates has descendants, mm-hmm. it would be interesting if any of them end up contacting us to find out more information.
0: I would love for them to contact us. I, I wanted to contact them. I couldn't find a contact information for them because I would have invited them to be on the show to see if they wanted to learn some of their family history. But uh-huh. So they're always welcome to join us for a special episode oh or something. Oh my gosh. But, yeah. well, and I
1: feel for them because, I mean, obviously feel more for the victims and the victim's well, families yeah. than for the murderers family. But I mean, their lives fell apart. I gotta tell you, I
0: feel almost equally for the murderers family mm-hmm. as a victim's family. I just feel different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Does
0: that make any sense? Cause totally because his girls and son mm-hmm. have to live with the repercussions mm-hmm. and they lived with him and it was not, you know, I mean, there was a lot of good things to their life, but it was not perfect you know, they have that weight on them. and mm-hmm. the victim's families, they've lost their family member. Right. You know, and actually both families lose a family member in the sense that the his daughters lost who they thought was their dad and mm-hmm. discovered he wasn't who they thought he was.
1: Right. Right. Well, and I wonder if some of it, especially with his daughter having gone to the police about his assault of her, mm-hmm. that you got to wonder... And none of them have really talked to the police about any of this. Uh, mm-hmm. At least not that I could find. Or talked to any reporters or anything that I could find. Um, but you got to wonder if they weren't a little bit relieved. Like, okay, we always kind of knew he was an asshole. But we could never like pinpoint it. You know, He would be mean. He'd be neglectful. He'd do these things. Um, but everybody else thought he was such a great guy.
0: I really recommend that you and everybody else watch American monster season two, episode two. I do believe I remember her saying there was this, Oh, I get it now.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I mean, it was like kind of the shock plus like, Oh, Mm -hmm. so it was, it's really interesting that the the program itself, it shows videos of the person that they're featuring. Mm -hmm. So home videos and stuff that people really haven't seen. So you see him in his home environment with the kids
1: wow and
0: different things as the family members or the people who were involved with the person discuss it there's it's crazy i mean wow he had this need to kill Mm -hmm. and i just don't understand that need from anybody and
1: you know i mean there's just so much about it that's so strange Mm -hmm. you know like He didn't seem to show any kind of proclivity as a child. There was no like he hurt animals. There were none of the usual predicators. He didn't have a head injury. Um, I mean, there were just like there was nothing that would have been like, hey, gotta keep an eye on this guy.
0: And he grew up in a smaller community, would be island. I mean
1: Yeah, but still, and then, you know, when he you know, he's an adult, he's a full on adult. And just whimsically decides to kill a couple of people, and it's like, w- what? What? That's crazy.
0: That one sounds like it. It was a fantasy he had had, and so when he saw that couple, the first mm-hmm. people he that we know that he murdered,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he probably's like, I didn't fantasize anything about this. Let's just do it.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and wow! See what happens. Well, and that could be it. I just
0: I fantasize by about finding murderers he fantasizes about being a murderer i mean i don't understand oh my
1: gosh i don't fantasize anything about murder well I'll i mean honest.
0: like catching like, one not like yeah
1: literally. no i no i i agree i i know where you're going with that but my okay. fantasies are more like wow somebody else weeded my garden that was nice <laughs> you know i come home and all the dishes are mysteriously done which would be very mysterious as, you know, it's not like yeah. I've got a roommate, you know. Yeah. I'd probably freak out, actually, if I came over. and i dishes were If out. I was single, that I'm would like, freak me out. Like, who's
0: been here? But that who's comes been close been to here? one of my actual fantasies, which is one, well, I actually have two.
1: <laughs> okay, I don't want to hear to about me. the other one. No, 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 no.
0: These are safe. Okay. <laughs> my goodness. They are related to my marriage, though. One is that my husband and my girls leave me. Not for good, but for like a long weekend. They go to see the in-laws. I get the house to myself for a full weekend. No responsibilities at night or in the morning. Nothing. Just me and that empty house. Wow. The other fantasy is that I'm out and about for a weekend or or come back after a night out and the house is sparkling clean.
1: Wow. These are, I'm like old and married and have kids fantasies. And they're probably about as realistic as mine getting the garden weeded. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it is. Well, have you been reading or watching anything lately? Well, you know, other than discovering the new podcast, which was really Mm -hmm. fun. You know, right now there's so many good things on. Um, All, you know, do we talk about All Creatures Great and Small? on PBS?
0: Yes, I think we did at one point.
1: Because it's just delightful. Um, So I thought I got caught up on season two. So mm-hmm. that made me super duper happy. And I discovered that m- one of my very favorite television shows happens to be Death in Paradise. Mm-hmm. And I did not know this, but there was a Christmas special that ah. was available on BritBox on Prime. And I just happened to come across it and it was like an hour and a half of just me being super happy because I hadn't, didn't even know that was out there. The The current season is happening over in the UK, but it's not available in the US right. yet. So I just have to sit tight and wait, which is not my strong suit. Um, I understand. <laughs> and we found out it Bridgerton is coming back on March 25th. I was going to so, mention that. <laughs> whew, I mean, this is the time to be alive, girl. That's all I have to say. How about I get, you? I get overwhelmed trying to decide what to watch.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean we're in our house we're very excited because Star Trek Discovery's back. It well, Yay! It, it was back and now it's on it's paused until March. And Finding Your Roots has new episodes now. Oh fun. We are obsessed. Um, just a little bit. I and love I that figure, show. I might figure out a way to watch the British version of Who Do You Think You Are
1: mm-hmm.
0: over here in the US cuz it's not available the regular way. You have to add something to your browser or something i don't know so i'm going to try to figure that out and see if i can get it because we've been waiting for who do you think you are the u.s version to come back and they keep saying oh it's coming and it hasn't come and we're, we're impatient
1: no i totally get that and then because it's a good show
0: yeah so i've been kind of watching some movies and stuff just because i get overwhelmed with the idea of all the tv shows i want to watch
1: where uh-huh. do i start and
0: so i shut down and i go oh, i'll just
1: watch a movie you know i totally get that i'm assuming you've seen Encanto. i have not oh i know i know i
0: need to see it i keep hearing about it but i keep thinking oh i should watch
1: it with the girls but i think the girls have seen it watch it again because i mean like make them watch it again they'll love it i'm sure they love it they have to love it but i have to tell you there's so much in that movie that just people can just identify with you know it's dealing with generational trauma it's dealing with family secrets it's dealing with never feeling like a special person, always being feeling like you're under pressure or you're, you know, you have to be perfect in every way. I mean, like all these things that's just like so human Mm -hmm. and the music, as the kids would say slaps.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is on. I, I definitely do want to see it. And then I did, I did read something about, and I don't know how true this is, but, um, Apparently, Disney execs thought that the character that people would want, like for the toys, was a skinny, pretty, traditionally pretty girl. In the movie. Oh, yeah.
1: I heard about that. Yeah.
0: And that instead, the girls are like, we they want the one with the muscles. And uh-huh. I'm just like, Lisa. I love mm-hmm. that so much. Mm-hmm. Like, stick it there, patriarchy.
1: Well, and I'm really glad because it was apparently a huge argument when they were deciding what Louisa would look like because they didn't want to give her those big manly mm-hmm. muscles and it was like okay this is speaking to lots of women who actually do look like that yes. you know who've never had a Disney princess who looked anything like her you know speaking as a six foot one Amazon I love Louisa I lo- in fact you know yesterday I was um, helping someone move a piece of furniture and it was literally like my sister-in-law my niece, my nephew, and it's a large dresser type thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was telling them, like look, guys, just get get out of the way and let me do this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I will put it on the back of the truck. Not a problem. You know, <laughs> it was like, I know you want to help, but you're kind of just in the way. So I can do this. <laughs> and my sister in was like, I forgot you can do that. Yeah, yeah, I totally can lift anything. I'm very strong. But it was just the funniest thing because it was kind of like, I am Luisa. I am her embodiment. I mean, like skin tone, eyes, dancing ability, not at all. But <laughs> I mean, but I identify with the super strong woman, you know. And we have so few of those, especially Mm -hmm. in Disney, especially. Yeah. So I just thought it was a totally brilliant movie and you must see it. I will.
0: Well, that was this episode. And, you know, I haven't quite decided who we're covering next.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, you've got some time to decide.
0: I have a little bit of time, but we do have a crossover coming up soon with uh, Cut Off Jeans i almost done writing that up, and then we'll arrange a time. I don't know when that's going to come out, everybody. But when it does, we will be sure to let you know. I was, cons- I have a couple possibilities for us to cover. I recently um, learned about two case interesting cases. One is a Terrence Miller, and they're both identified through DNA. And that's where I found them very interesting. One was a, a Terrence Miller... And he was recently identified as killing Jody Loomis. He was put on trial and then he killed himself the day before the verdict came out.
1: Oh, wow.
0: So I thought that one could be interesting. And the other one, oh, the other one is Joseph Henry Loveless. And okay. his body was found in Idaho Cave um, in 1916. And oh. he was d- identified through DNA. And it turned out he had killed his wife in 1916. And the thought is that his, her family must have had revenge on him.
1: Oh, wow. So yeah, let's those, do him.
0: Let's, we'll do him then. So
1: he sounds interesting.
0: Yeah. And I mean, he would have had children and stuff going down. It might be a quick one, but there's nothing wrong with a quick episode. So... So thanks, everybody, for joining us. And next time, Joseph Henry Lovelace.
1: Well, as always, this was an amazing show. Thank you so much for all your hard work on this, Denise. Um, and thanks to the listeners for listening. Yeah, we really
0: do appreciate you. And we know it's been a long time since we put out episodes, but we are back and we are excited to be back. And we hope you join us again where murder and family meet. Thank you for listening to Murderous Roots. If you enjoyed our podcast, we hope that you'll subscribe and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and any suggestions you might have for future episodes. You can find us on most social media outlets like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even TikTok. You can also find us at MurderousRoots.com. That's M U R. D E R O U S R O O T S dot com, where you can find more materials related to the episode that we just discussed.